Paul, in this episode, we are going to talk about anger. There just seems to be a lot of anger out there, doesn't there? And in many cases, anger leads to violence. Violence is an undeniable part of our society. You can read about violence perpetuated in one way or another every day in the news. From two people in a bar fight, to the rise in hate crimes against Asians that we have talked about, to our society's ongoing struggle with shootings, oftentimes mass shootings. You know, surrounding environments can foster anger, allow for anger, accept anger. And we are not going to be able to, nor are we going to attempt to provide answers here as to what needs to be done to end all anger and violence. But there are some trends and issues in our society that do tie into anger and violence and some of that impact white men specifically. So as white men, we want to have this conversation because by having this conversation, we can at least start to chip away at what we can do in our own lives in smaller ways than say, ending anger, but they can still have a positive impact. This is The Modern White Man, the podcast where myself, Paul Johnson, and me, Ken Lawrence, discuss how to be a modern white man who is anti-racist, anti-sexist, and understands his role in creating an equitable society. You know, Paul, with that example of two people in a bar fight, I just saw a news article that said these two guys were at a bar and one of the guys confronted the other about social distancing. That guy punched that guy in the face. He fell on his head and died. Mm. I mean, violence really is an everyday thing. Even like a one-on-one altercation like that can have significant consequences and significant impacts on people's lives every day. Um, so it's the small things, but it's also the mass shootings. It just really is a part of everyday life. How we're going to start this conversation out is with the racial and gender hierarchies. We have discussed, as our listeners know, who have been with us on this journey since the beginning, you know, the racial and gender hierarchies, how and why they were created. It essentially was a way to economically gain and uphold power. For gender, it was initially created by men to assert their importance and power. For race, it was initially created by white men to justify the slave trade. And it continues to exist and evolve in different ways to uphold that power. So why we're starting with the hierarchies here is to recognize how they are harmful for white men as well, and men from all races with regard to gender. We started to tap into that with our conversation on toxic masculinity that we had in episodes 5 and 6. If you recall, it's the idea that men have to live up to the expectations of what makes a real man, even though much of that is antiquated and even if it goes against how a man is feeling. You know, it can result in men feeling pressure, never living up to those standards, lashing out, proving their manliness in unhealthy and unnatural ways. There is a similar reaction to the expectations that come from being on top of both the race and gender hierarchies that has been seeped into our minds as well. It's an expectation that as a man, I must be living the way that this hierarchy is telling me on the top. And if I'm not, something must be wrong. And if it's not my fault, because I'm doing everything I can, it's someone else's fault. 
So at this point, I thought it'd be interesting to bring in a really interesting excerpt from a book that I read recently called uh, Mediocre, The Dangerous Legacy of White Male America. And it's written by uh, Ijeoma Oluo. So th- this is what she says. It's, it's a fantastic book. I recommend any white male to read it. But there's an excerpt that jumped out at me that really fits well into this conversation. So what Oluo says is, So much of what makes a white male angry is the climb and the hierarchy. But I think it's more than the, just the climb. It's the expectation that many white men have that they shouldn't have to climb. They shouldn't have to struggle as others do. It's the idea not only that they think they have less than others, but that they were supposed to have so much more. When you are denied the power, the success, or even the relationships that you think are your right, you either believe that you are broken or that you have been stolen from. White men who think that they have been stolen from often take that anger out on others. White men who think they are broken take that anger out on themselves. So notice here how Oluo intentionally cites anger as the raw emotion that men express in both those situations of feeling that you're broken or feeling that you're stolen from. And I really think that's spot on and it struck a chord with me when I was reading it because anger, in my opinion, is really definitely the predominant emotion that I feel as a, as a man. And I, and I believe that this really comes from what is acceptable as being a male. So I alluded this to in an earlier episode when we talked about crying or how little I cry. Um, I think I mentioned that I've cried about three times. It's probably more than that, but but very few times. But I do want to add as a side note, I can, I can say I've cried four times because Ooh. I did, since then, uh, my daughter was born and um, I cried during the birth of my daughter. It was just one of the most amazing experiences of my life. Yeah, very um, nice. Can you imagine what a crier like me did when my daughter <laughs> yeah. was born? Oh my gosh. A they, blubber yeah, fest. They probably brought in towels to, <laughs> yeah. to clean out the tears, but... Yeah, it was it was just such a such an emotional experience, you know. But overall, I rarely feel sad, and I frequently feel anger. Hmm. So, and I really believe this is because toxic masculinity teaches men that anger is an acceptable emotion to express, whereas sadness is conditionally acceptable. So maybe at a funeral or maybe at a wedding, you know. So again, I'm not saying here that anger is a bad thing. Anger is a natural emotion that everyone feels, and there's there's obviously time a time and a place for it. But it seems like we're men, as men, we're, that is the emotion that we can express when we experience a loss or a rejection or for feeling self-conscious or if someone slights us. Anger seems to be the default emotion. And I think it's a default because anger is a fitting emotion for toughness and strength, whereas being sad has a stigma of being soft or vulnerable or even feminine. Yeah. So you kind of we can get into something like misogyny mm-hmm. of men having this hatred towards women or or female qualities, and so we avoid anything that might feel or seem or appear feminine, mm-hmm. especially in public, especially in front of other men. What I think you know at the end of the day, anger seems to be acceptable. Yeah. And also, you know, when you see it in the media, in movies, it's about revenge. It's about when something bad happens, you get angry and then you respond in violence or vengeance, right? Right. Um, yeah, it's like not... Liam Neeson and Taken. Exactly. Yeah, it, Liam it was, was not... It was cool to be, show toughness and yeah. anger and no emotion. Yeah. And then, you know, of course, the whole CIA training killing yeah. spree. But then you think about the mother in that movie mm. and she was 
in tatters and showing emotion and crying right. and but you know if Liam did that it wouldn't have been a movie it wouldn't have been noteworthy it maybe mm-hmm. you know it wouldn't have been exceptional or something mm-hmm. like that yeah and in I haven't seen the movie but I'm assuming someone was was taken from right. him right yes, okay. his daughter yeah, yeah, yeah just yeah. just a guess but yeah. but you know it's again not a not necessarily a bad thing to get angry I think right. it would be completely acceptable to get angry in that situation but as humans, we're really meant to experience and express the broad range of emotions, right. including something like sadness. And right. I think it'd be completely acceptable and I think normal to show some sort of sadness mm-hmm. at some point in, in the journey he was on with what he's experiencing. But I'm assuming that throughout the whole movie, he was stoic, he was focused, he was, yeah. you know, had, you could see he had this chip on his shoulder and this, this boiling anger being at the surface mm-hmm. probably came out in a climax at the end, right? So. Right. But yeah, I, I would love to kind of get your thoughts about mm-hmm. what Oluo said, particularly around the line that really jumps out at me is when you're denied the power, the success, or even the relationships that you think are your right, you either believe that you are broken or that you've been stolen from. White men who think they've been stolen from often take their anger out on others. White men who think they are broken take that anger out on themselves. Yeah, I think that's a really insightful point and takeaway that you have it really makes me think about this in in this way that i don't think i have before and i I agree with you i think it is a part of that like traditional masculinity that you and i have talked about in our past episodes to be emotional or show emotion i think that the natural thought to that is weakness so i think for you to call it like yeah we've been conditioned that anger is okay and showing any kind of other emotion that might show weakness is not okay. That's a really insightful takeaway. And with Oluo's quote, the word that jumps out to me is the expectation. And I think that it's this expectation that comes along with these hierarchies that is so damaging. And it's so damaging to white men and, and white people or in any situation where people think that because of something that we've just internalized that I deserve this or I should be doing this if we don't get it you combine that with well an acceptable reaction is anger you can kind of see how some of this would manifest itself and I think having expectations about what your life should or should not be is kind of a dangerous thing And if white men have been internalized that, hey, we're expecting to be on the top. I'm expecting to be, if I'm not a a CEO or if I'm not this or that, I'm not doing enough. That's where expectations can be really damaging. Yeah, and I personally have felt that resentment or anger that comes from feeling entitled to things. You know, the first example that comes to mind is if I'm applying for jobs Mm -hmm. and I don't get an interview or I do get an interview and then someone's picked over me. I know for a fact in my history, I've responded with, with anger and frustration and resentment because, I, because I, I think at a deep level, I feel like I'm entitled to that position. I'm entitled to just get what I want. And I think what also goes to that is I've felt rejected from spaces, rejected from social circles. You know, recently doing DEI work, I've felt this sort of like entitlement to just show up in spaces, you know, even when the spaces of color and just expected to be welcomed in, expected to be part of the group, even just part of DEI work in general. Um, Be able to share your ideas and raise your hand. Exactly. And I've 
definitely experienced rejection and, and people explicitly or implicitly saying you're not welcome here. And, you know, that's okay. And I think it's totally appropriate, right? But, but I think in general, I've gone through life just kind of expecting and feeling entitled to just show up wherever mm-hmm. in this world and be able to just insert myself. Yeah. I think that that's something that's really I've thought about a lot lately. And I think what other folks experience completely differently, yeah. right? They show up and they, they know it's going to be a grind to be accepted, to be welcomed, to get their ideas heard, to... Even they know it's going to be a while to climb the ladder, if you will. Right. But as white men, we expect to just go straight to the top of the ladder. Yeah. And if we show up to that training and we're not allowed in the door and it's like, hey, you know, this space is is for BIPOC folks. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of us would be angry Mm -hmm. and we'd feel like we belong to be in that space. Mm -hmm. Even if we don't, we kind of think we do. And if we don't, it's taken away from our freedom. It's taken away from, you know, whatever you want to say. But BIPOC folks have been experiencing that forever. And just like having those types of situations where it's like implicitly or implicitly or explicitly, (laughs) um, you are not welcome here. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I would expect that same thing too. And I think that I would be, you know, maybe angered. You know, and also your takeaway about linking anger to how that has been acceptable for men, whereas other emotions haven't. Mm -hmm. Another even really clear way of seeing that is flipping it, where women, when they express anger, that's kind of unacceptable. And you hear all the time, oh, that's just an angry woman. You know, if you see in politicians or someone in the workplace who's a really strong woman, who maybe gets angry every once in a while, that perception versus when a man is angry or shows anger every once in a while is totally different. Mm -hmm. You're like, that woman is an angry, you know, if it's a black woman, the stereotype, Mm -hmm. the angry black woman. Mm -hmm. The, um, you know, you think about politicians in the past, women who are really strong, it's like, she's just an angry woman. Mm And when men are do that, it's just seen as strong. It's Mm -hmm. seen as willed, you know, passionate. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, what this has me thinking is, we'll talk a little bit about this later, is the vast, vast majority of violence, physical violence, committed in this world is committed by men. So that's an interesting link where it's acceptable for men to show anger. We've been conditioned for that to be okay. Even not only acceptable, but encouraged. Mm-hmm. And, and if you show your anger, good on you, you know. Whereas forever women have been conditioned the opposite of you should be the pious housewife, mm-hmm. submissive, you know, those things that we've talked about in our past discussions about traditional femininity and masculinity. Is there a correlation there? You know, I'm just thinking now where, okay, and then violence is committed by all these men. What if men were also conditioned the same way where showing signs of outright anger, you know, where anger, like you said, isn't a negative emotion but what if it was seen as less acceptable or even like showing emotion in other ways and being vulnerable was as acceptable mm-hmm. would violence therefore go down you know well yeah i mean i i don't have the data in front of me but i'm sure most of the time anger leads to violence more than any other emotion mm-hmm. right sadness to me leads to empathy and connection with other people and i would i would imagine you know if you were to punch me you know which i know you you would never do because you're a pacifist you're not that type of hockey player but never. let's just say at a moment of of 
passion. You see red because I because I gave you you know a little hip check, and you turn around and give me an elbow to the face. If I respond with feeling hurt, feeling sad, even started crying, like I would imagine you'd be more likely to maybe at worst back away and give me some yeah, space. Yeah. At best, come over and actually console me, yeah. right? Or say, hey, sorry, you know, yeah. didn't mean to. It just kind of came out it was of me. Uncalled for, Unca- right? You know, but what we see is is this tit for tat, you know, anger and violence. You know, we've been conditioned to respond in kind and even ratchet it up a little bit. It's one of those things where I think it's, I don't know if contagious is the right word, but that anger begets anger from the other person. Yeah, right. You know what the hierarchy does that links to this as well is I think that it diminishes individual struggles. And so white men being on top of these hierarchies that were totally constructed are giving us false information. That doesn't mean that all white men have zero struggles in life. And that can result in pain, resentment, and then anger. You know, if somebody said to me, you know, let's say I was really struggling with something, you know, yeah, but you're a white man. Like, how difficult can it be? You're a white man in America. You could see how that could result in pain and resentment and if you'd think about if it was acceptable for a white man who was struggling to maybe show this type of emotion and be like hey like i i get i'm hearing all this stuff but i'm really struggling with this and and trying to have a conversation and talking versus just responding in anger and then creating divisiveness with others you know i think that there's something there too that another side effect of this hierarchy that will lead to anger mm-hmm yeah, it makes me think about when, you know, past episode, you said you hate the at least dot, dot, dot. Yeah, right. right? And that's what makes me think of that. Like, you know, if, if I were to talk about how I'm struggling, I'm sure a lot of people would say, well, you know, at least you don't have it as bad as these other people, right? Mm-hmm. And and I get why people do that, but it, all people deserve empathy and compassion. And yeah, at the end of the day, objectively, you and I have it way better than other people. But does that mean we don't deserve even just some sort of empathetic response in in the moment Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah i think we do i I think because it's not just about what we're going through in that moment it's bigger than that Mm -hmm. i think the idea is that we we don't go to empathy and showing compassion towards each other Mm -hmm. just doesn't feel like the default yeah and i think we just need more of that because just like anger begets anger you know compassion begets compassion and empathy begets empathy and it's the idea of building that muscle in us as human beings especially as men where right now our strongest muscles are the like toughen up pull yourself up by your bootstraps man up mm-hmm. get over yourself and don't go to vulnerability and softness yeah. and sadness and i think that we need to build other muscles yeah and even thinking about white people specifically who live in poverty There are a lot of white families out there, of course, that work paycheck to paycheck, have a lot of stress, have healthcare bills, like all of these Mm -hmm. things, don't have access to things that people in the big cities have. I think working on racial equity on our side, it can sometimes be easy to overlook that or not give that some attention when we're really thinking about the racial hierarchy and all the terrible things that we've done with race and gender. And we have talked about socioeconomic as well, but I always think about those folks, or I try to, because a lot of times those are the ones who are vocal against racial equity work are showing signs of anger, Mm -hmm. you know, because they feel this pain and resentment, like, 
you know what, I am struggling here. And all I'm hearing Ken and Paul talk about is I'm on top of this, these hierarchies, but like, I have so much stress. I'm trying to pay my kids through this, like that exists. And I think that causes a lot of anger. And I, what is unfortunate is that there's a racial divide that was created in the first place. Mm-hmm. I've mentioned this a few times because it's so powerful, I think, where if lower socioeconomic classes across the board could kind of realize that and could come together and be like, hey, we're, we're kind of fighting the same fight here. You know, racial equity work, gender equity work, that is not replacing supporting families like that to white families that are struggling. Mm-hmm. It's in complement. But it's not seen that way by a lot of people in all of those circles. And it's just all these different kind of divides. But I do think that that causes white men anger who are in those positions. Yeah, because you said earlier, white men think we should be at the top. And the top is such a vague, you know, it's, yeah. it's such what does a, that mean? what does that mean? Right. And what do you what do you have if you're at the top? What does it mean if you're not at the top? How many people can be at the top? Yeah. You know, and I think that's what partly is what fuels a lot of anger is because we don't objectively know what that means. Yeah, right. And so we're chasing something that is 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 undefinable. Totally. And it, a lot of times it's very subjective. Yeah. And then you're never satisfied ever. And I think that the the benchmarks always and the goalposts move all the time too, because because our culture is changing, our country is changing, standards are changing, what we value changes. You know, I think. There's you know, a lot of well, people in general struggle with like, well, what I used to bring to the table, what I, the skills I have, the knowledge I have, it used to be valuable, but it's not anymore. Right. They felt like they're at the top. Now they're not at the top anymore. And that's the other thing too. Once you get to the top, you don't stay at the top, you know? And so it, it's, it's just one of these games, if you will, that's unwinnable. Yeah. And to throw into the mix that you feel entitled to be at the top and to stay at the top it not only evokes that anger and that frustration and the resentment if you're not there, but when you are there, you don't budge. Yeah. Right. right. And this goes back to how, you know, white folks, especially white men hoard power mm-hmm. because they know maybe in their minds or maybe uh, symbolically because they have the CEO title, they're, they're like, I made it right. and I'm not moving. I'm not going to budge for anyone because... If I do, that means there's something, you know, I lose something, not just money. It's not like they're taking a pay cut if they, you know, move down in the the ladder, but there's more to it. There's also this internal value, self-worth. And I think we feel like less of a human and less of a white man if we aren't at the top. And so where is the incentive to give up our power, which is what you and I talk about is what, what white men should do in equity work. So it's this internal conflict of of shooting for the top, but go to the top of the ladder because we know that's where white white men quote unquote should be. Mm-hmm. But we're also struggling with this idea that we need to give up the spotlight and the leadership to people of color in this work. Yeah, and I think that really results in fear, and it's kind of like a thing that you see on news headlines that's really catchy, like the fear of white men, or white men are just mm-hmm. really fearful, and that's why they're doing X Y Z. Um, And there's probably a lot of truth in that. I think most people are afraid of one thing or another. But I think that when you think of that fear of losing status in a changing country, it's like that's another negative thing that white men suffer from from this hierarchy is that 
as our country is evolving, it's changing. And there's just like a fear in there because what does that mean for me? I haven't known anything besides having these privileges. I haven't known anything besides being quote unquote at the top. You know, you said nobody knows what that means and how that was once so great and we're losing it and we have to go back to that. So you're actively fighting against equity work or, or, you know, work that is trying to make it better for other folks because you see it as being suppressed. You know, one of my favorite things I've learned from you when you're used to privilege, equality feels like oppression. I should look up who actually said that because you you keep saying it as if like... I said it, but I definitely did not say that. Somebody said the thing that you quote. Yeah, but but it is a white male thing to do to take yeah. credit for it. So that's why yeah. I, I wanna I want to. Uh, I know that's give credit where credit is due. Always do. I don't know if anyone knows. It's okay. Not, well, I actually don't know who said it. And after a quick search through Ask Jeeves, I couldn't <laughs> find anything. So hey, here's our first shout out to our listeners. If you know who said yes. when you're accustomed to privilege, equality feels like oppression. Yes, let us know. Please send us an email, tweet us. We'd love to. We'd love to hear who said it and give credit where credit is due. Yes, that's great. When I kind of think back to, I really liked episode ten when we talked about breaking out of individualism, and I think that that links to this hierarchy. And, and you know, we've been bamboozled. A word I can give you credit for using that I've really liked. I said that? You said bamboozled. Oh, I love that episode. word. It's great. <laughs> it's so good. And uh, I have it written a few times. It might have replaced I noticed that. as my favorite word. Oh, yeah. It's now bamboozled. <laughs> but when we, you know, we've been bamboozled, as you said, into like believing that going to the top, needing more that more money will equal more happiness. You know, this individualism mindset, and we really have been bamboozled because if we want to help ourselves, if we truly want to impact our lives, then we would think about a big picture. And that is a part of this hierarchy as well. And this hierarchy, the racial racial and gender hierarchies is very individualistic. I need to rise to the top. And if other people are going to threaten me, I'm going to feel this fear. And that's why, you know, when you think about as white men, as people doing equity work, breaking this hierarchy in doing that, it, you know, we break that down. It makes our lives better. And I think that that's something that if you don't look at it that way, you could see where fear might seep in. A real quick break here as we are in the midst of this important discussion to tell our listeners that we have a new way to connect with us so we keep these important conversations and learnings going. We have a new website available, www.themodernwhiteman.com, where you can learn more about our work, read blog posts with topics revolving around the continuous work of being anti-racist, anti-sexist, and our role as white men in creating equity, and you can subscribe to our newsletter. It's a new way to receive updates on new podcast episodes, new blog posts, and various relevant topics and future ways to get more involved. And also, it's easier than ever to get in contact with us. You know, we love hearing feedback and ideas from listeners. As Paul said, please somebody tell us who said when you're used to privilege, equality feels like oppression. So be sure to check out that website and subscribe to that newsletter. So back to that conversation, you know, really the impetus of having this discussion of why we started thinking about anger is because it often does result in violence. And, you know, there are many factors that go into violence, of course, mental health, 
trauma, radicalization, you know, there are a lot. But one of the factors that violence is linked to undoubtedly is anger. And there is violence perpetuated throughout the world in every country and society. And in the United States, that is certainly true. We struggle with violence. And what makes our violence somewhat unique and different from other countries is gun violence specifically. So in episode 9, when we discussed anti-Asian discrimination, it was in response to a mass shooting in Atlanta that killed 8 people, including 6 Asians. Because mass shootings have become devastatingly such a frequent way that violence is perpetuated in our society, let's talk about that. Because get this, Paul. So in the two weeks in March of 2021, a few weeks ago, with those two high-profile mass shootings that we talked about in Atlanta and Boulder, they happened within two weeks, there were not two mass shootings that happened in those two weeks. There were 24 Okay, so before we dig into that, first, let's define what makes a shooting a mass shooting. A mass shooting is a single incident in which four or more people are shot or killed. So according to Statista, I think I'm saying that right, between 1982 and 2021, there have been 123 mass shootings in the United States. Of the 123, only three have been carried out by women. So this is undeniably a male phenomenon. So that kind of links to the anger things that we have been talking about as well. And as far as the racial distribution goes for mass shooters, broadly speaking, the distribution mirrors the racial distribution of the U.S. population as a whole. Roughly 53% are white, 17% black, and 8% Latino. And I think there is a lot of implicit bias when it comes to mass shootings. I think on all sides, right? Who is the most frequent to perpetuate them, the root causes? And an implicit bias that really stuck out to me and I think was really well called out was from Josiah Bates in a Times article who calls out that there are always types of shootings that get the most attention, right? So think Atlanta and Boulder. We heard about those too. But remember, there were 24 mass shootings that happened in that span. Mass shootings happen all the time. But when they happen, let's say, in the inner city black communities, as Josiah Bates points out, it quote-unquote makes sense. They aren't big headlines. There aren't big questions as to why it happened. But at a grocery store, to what people think, are those just going about normal lives? It is a tragedy. And it is. Let me be perfectly clear. It is an absolute tragedy. And so are those inner city shootings. These shootings don't make sense anywhere. Are we not concerned about the motive of an inner city shooter? You know, that's bias. Wow. There's Sorry to jump in, but there's a lot there. Yeah. A couple things I see are part of the the anti-blackness that is pervasive in our country, right? So if we hear about, and we don't even hear about mass shootings when it involves all or most African Americans, because it's, it's, like you said, it's not seen as much as a tragedy or it's, or it's more of like, that's just what black people do. Right. 
right? It's black on black crime. Yep. There's a lack of empathy for black folks for loss of life. And there's turning to the white shooters. There's this like, what is going on? Yeah. Like this can't, you know. Yeah, exactly. It's another white person. We have deeper empathy towards that other white person. Yeah. I feel as white people, we sort of by default have a deeper sense of empathy towards another white person than a, a person of color that we see ourselves in, in them at some at some level right right yeah and everybody has biases but you being able to recognize that and check that is the way to kind of yeah. continue towards anti-racism which exactly is, yeah this to me helps make sense why we're not seeing sweeping widespread policies and change to to prevent mass shootings yes that because was yeah you know, because first of all, it's it's at least the ones that make the news are white men. But as you as you said, it mirrors the distribution as a whole. But the ones that we see most frequently, like th- those statistics really threw me off. I thought it was going to be like 90 percent white men or white folks. Right. And then I think it's going to going back to anger and violence as a predominant emotion and a predominant and acceptable reaction to something happening. Mm-hmm. So there's something even though obviously objectively men would be like mass shootings are bad, of course. There's still because we, we, we live in a patriarchal society where it's just sort of like it's minimized or justified or brushed under the rug. I don't know. But it's starting to make sense to me. Yeah, you know, right. Of why we're not seeing, you know, because objectively you look back and be like, why are we not creating laws, policies to stop mass shootings? So we, we keep saying like, how come this, how, how come this keeps happening? But right. we don't do anything about it. Well, and Josiah Bates had that same type of takeaway because in the article he links it to the nation's response to car crashes uh, roughly 50 years ago it was deemed a health pandemic because so many people were dying in car crashes and to address it there was a comprehensive national approach so everything from Mm -hmm. drunk driving to speed limits to banked curves to collapsible steering columns to seat belts like on and on and it reduced car accident related deaths by 80 percent because we looked at it comprehensively And if you think about mass shootings, like there are so many root causes. A lot of it can be linked to this hierarchy we've talked about and anger and the idea of what one should be or what one should accomplish, right? Among many other things. And when you look at all these root causes for shootings, the same way you would look at what are all the things that cause car crashes, because it was happening to everybody across the nation, right? Like every family. So everybody got behind Mm -hmm. it, Mm -hmm. you know, like the suburban families as well, right? Everybody got behind to support this. Just think if we took a comprehensive national approach to addressing it, you know, there could be significant improvements with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and when you look at some of these high profile shootings, especially the ones most recently, people of color are targeted or or marginalized populations. You think about the Pulse nightclub, right? LGBTQIA. So there is this element of, you know, white men who are in power who have the ability to to make these decisions are seeing who's getting killed. And on some level, they're being like, oh, well, well, they feel you know, a disconnect to those people it's too. A, it's a disconnect, and they're they're lower on the hierarchy, which means right. less than human. It just right. goes back to, of course, you know how people viewed African Americans as as subhuman, and yeah. so and we know this because of you know, Black Lives Matters. There's a difference in how we value life. The white male is the highest of the highest valued life, right? If there is an out, you know, suddenly all these mass shootings against especially wealthy, heterosexual, cisgender white male, in an instant, there would be policies, right? But because those aren't the victims, I, I really, I believe that's why we're not seeing much response. 
Yeah, I actually have some stats on those shootings that are hate crimes. So, you know, hate crimes are motivated by prejudice on the basis of race, religion, sexual orientation, or other groups. So you're spot on. You know, the, you mentioned the 2016 Pulse nightclub shooting in Orlando, Florida. Pulse nightclub is a gay nightclub. It killed 49 people. You know, think the Atlanta shooting that we've mentioned. Think the self-identified white supremacist who in 2015 killed nine black parishioners in Charleston, South Mm. Carolina. Think the 2018 Pittsburgh synagogue shooting, killing 11. The list sadly goes on and on. And there was a study by the Behavioral Sciences of Terrorism and Political Aggression in 2019 found that 82% of mass shootings from 1982 to 2018, met at least three of the following motivations, political, religious, ideological, or social. So you think 82% of mass shootings have some kind of multiple motivations feeding it that have created these divides, you know, social divides, ideological, religious, that result in these shootings. I mean, that links directly to those hierarchies. That links directly to a race divide, but also religious divides. You know, you you have LGBTQ, the gender spectrum divides, like all the, the prejudices and discrimination that goes into that. I think there's just an interesting correlation between it all between pressure the division the 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 reason for upholding power that leads to anger and self-doubt and self-worth and then resulting in more and more anger and then resulting in violence and then in the u.s these mass shootings it just there seems to be an undeniable correlation yeah and the question i always think about is why aren't these folks turning the other direction why aren't they turning their anger and their violence not, I'm not, not saying that they should, like obviously there should be zero violence, but why aren't they turning their violence more towards those at the top who are really responsible for the hierarchy and upholding it and responsible for the oppression that everyone's experiencing, you know, the 1% versus the 99%. So uh, to, to speak a little bit on that, you know, because I've been thinking about why white men hold so much anger and resentment towards marginalized folks. Where is that coming from? So white men hold so much power, status, privilege, and access to opportunities in this country. You and I know that. It's it's part of white privilege. It's part of male privilege. So you'd think that because we have it made in the shade, we'd actually be going out of our way to help others who are less fortunate. Yet, we're almost seeing the opposite. White men going out of their way to target marginalized populations and kick them while they're down. So this brings me back to what Oluo talks about this resentment that white men hold because we think we should be, quote-unquote, at the top. So it makes me think of a concept I just learned about called last place aversion. I think you'll find this interesting. I read about this in a book called The Sum of Us by Heather McGee. It's the idea that in a hierarchical system, which clearly we are in, people often show more concern about their relative position than their absolute position. So let me give you a study to kind of give you an example. In one study, people had the option to give money either to people who had more money than they had or those who had less money than they had. In general, as you'd expect, people gave money to those who had less. Except, the one exception was for the people who were in second to last place in the money distribution to begin with. So these were the folks who had the second second to last least money. I did not say that well, but I think you know what I'm saying. So if there were five levels yep. with the highest being number one, it'd be those in the fourth. 
Correct. Okay. Yep. So these players, those who are second to last, often gave their money to the people above them so that they wouldn't fall into last place. To give an example in the real world, so people who make a dollar more, there was research done and found that people who would make a dollar more than the minimum wage actually show less support for an increase of the overall minimum wage, even though throughout the country there's overall a ton of support for minimum wage. So these are people who make just $1 more than minimum wage, and they were less supportive than the general population. So this this would have been a change that doesn't affect them whatsoever. They still maintain their wages, um, but they were willing to actually show less support. So here we go. Here's my theory. This is my white male. Is it a hypothesis? Hypothesis, One might say. Yes, I will say that. So I guess in a way, what we're talking about is sort of this flipped on its head, but it's still this last place aversion. So we know that objectively speaking, white men are very high up in the hierarchy here in the United States, objectively speaking. But because there is a presumption that white men should be successful and should be rich and whatnot, these white men feel that they're at or towards the bottom. So even someone like you or me, Hmm. right? Hmm. You and I are making middle class who are doing fine, but we're not at the top. So we might think subjectively that we are actually more towards the bottom. So one through five, one are quote unquote the top. You and I might be in two, Yep. but we don't see it that way because we think we should be at yep. the top. So we think we're in like four. Right. Because you look at a Jeff Bezos, you look at Elon Musk, they're making trillions of dollars and you and I are making like, I, I don't know what. Only make, millions. But, yeah, right. Only millions. Yeah. <laughs> but clearly not even close to that. Right. So we feel subjectively like we're more at four. So, so in many ways, these white men are at the quote unquote bottom because more powerful people, mostly white men, created a system that hoards power and resources at the top. If you look at many of these white men who commit mass shootings, they are not part of the elite, right? I think that's true. I don't think we've ever seen someone that's very true. who is, is, is rich, who is, an, you know, maybe a superstar athlete. Like these are folks who are probably out, social outcasts. They grew up poor, but they just didn't meet that standard, social standard of being male. And then you bring in a race, they weren't at the top, so therefore they were broken, right? They didn't really have a sense of belonging. Exactly. Right? And again, entitlement is key, right? So so that builds in that resentment. But do they take their anger and frustration out on the folks who are actually creating the wealth gap in a caste system? No. And in fact, they vote, they vote these white men into office. So instead, they take their anger and frustration out on those they perceive to be just below them. So again, perception is important here. It's not reality, it's perception. So African Americans, immigrants, Asian Americans, etc. So in a way, many white men, I feel, are experiencing a sort of phenomenon that is akin to the last place aversion concept. All right, Ken, you're going to be proud of me here. Okay. I'm going to quote a little history. I did a little history Ooh. research here. Yeah. Well, I didn't do research. I, I read a book. It, it also came from the Some of Us I, I mentioned earlier. So I read about how this happened with the Irish. Mm-hmm. And I thought this would be interesting because you, you are Irish. Yes. As we talked about earlier, there was a time when the Irish were considered non-white. As they fought to attain the status of whiteness, they're going through that process of attaining whiteness, which you mentioned was a process. Like you actually, people went to court and actually right. fought to be considered to, white. Right. Yeah. So as they fought to attain this status, they brutalized black neighborhoods in the pre-Civil War era. In fact, there was a time when bricks were known as, quote-unquote, Irish confetti because they were hurled at the homes of black folks so much. 
In July of 1963, the Civil War draft riots occurred. Thousands of Irish immigrants attacked the black community, including children at an orphanage. The attacks were so brutal that the black population in New York City decreased by 20% after the riots. Wow. So here's an example of a group, the Irish, who probably felt second to last place. So this last place aversion caused them to attack those who actually were in last place. But in reality, their proximity to whiteness, which is pure gold in this country, right? Because they appeared white, they had white skin, put them much higher in the racial hierarchy. So I just I think this just speaks to the idea that the racial hierarchy may be more subjective than we think it is. Okay. There's a lot to unpack here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this that is powerful. And first off, I am proud of you. Thank you. That Thank was you. great. Very, very interesting. I, a little history there. Like yeah. that's Yeah. Wow. Did I mean, you know about no th- th- that? No. Yeah. I did not. Okay, so so many thoughts. <laughs> first off, this is really insightful. And The Sum of Us by Heather McGee and like the study, it just makes a lot of sense. It's kind of like what I was talking about earlier, right? Where those white families and men and folks who are living in poverty or, you know, maybe maybe not even in poverty, but don't have kind of what they think of as the top of the top. Their idea of advancing or getting further or why they're not further isn't the people ahead of them they take it out on people below them is it so that they can be accepted kind of into the top or just like that's their idea of how they don't want to be associated with those at the bottom i think so yeah because it's even heather mcgee talks more in the book is really about how racial equity we talked about last episode about racial equity is good for everyone especially economically speaking Mm -hmm. and she gives she gives an example of unions you know there's there's a lot of white folks who who are anti-union because unions would have essentially support and uplift people of color who are you know also in the same you know industry that in the book that she talks about car manufacturing right Mm -hmm. So, so they are actually willing to be anti-union, which, as we know, unions would help them, right. right? This would help them increase their wages. It would get more time off. It would get more benefits. But they're they are refusing to do it. And she argues it's because it's racially motivated. Because she says that the predominant belief is that racial equity is a zero-sum game. So if someone else gains something, I lose something is essentially what that means. Mm-hmm. So I think it's definitely motivated racially. Like I just, there's something ingrained in us that we just don't want to advance people below us in the racial hierarchy. And I also think it's this, it's this myth that racial equity means when other people gain something, we lose something. Right, right. It's really insightful. I think that yeah. it, that helps to shine light on a lot of what we see today in society and politically. You know, I've been such a, I think I've said a few times throughout this podcast at various points the power of if lower socioeconomic folks banded together and like saw it that way because if yep. you think okay one through five use that you know my simple mind if three through five were like one and two have most of everything we aren't the enemies here we if we you know increase this system so there are no numbers we are going to help each other out but instead the ones and the twos they have intentionally tried to separate Mm -hmm. the three through fives because they know that 
and, yep. and to a really successful point. And I think mm-hmm. through these hierarchies, through race, through gender, all these the religion, you know, yep. creating this type of divide any way you can. So they just like fight am- amongst these. So uh, exactly. And, and you've mentioned this in the past that, that that was one of the purposes of creating racial hierarchy, too, is to to prevent that uprising. Because if you take race off the table, if that concept didn't exist, I think we certainly would see a three through five uprising yeah. towards the one and two because that example with with the unions, right? Like race wouldn't be even on the table, right? And there wouldn't be this anti-blackness, anti-immigrant, anti-anyone who's not white. And what happens is we're all in this together. We're yeah. all being oppressed economically, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But because there's a racial hierarchy, it throws a wrench into that, that unity. And this is sort of the, the, the ridiculousness of it. You have white folks who are willing to even shoot themselves in the foot to get help, to get advantages, to get more, again, with the second place aversion, to just keep who's in last place in last place. Yeah, right, right. Right? Maybe they're like, all right, fine, yeah, I'm in second to last place. I've accepted my fate, but I am sure as hell not going to let anyone in last place go around me. Right. That racial gender hierarchy is so impactful on that socioeconomic hierarchy. It's so skewed. This one through five thing I can't yeah. get out of my mind <laughs> yeah. is so skewed towards white people. Like to create a socioeconomically anything close to equality on that, you, we have to destroy the racial hierarchy mm-hmm. and we have to create equitable systems, include, you know, affirmative action steps. That is a massive way to to create socioeconomic mm-hmm. and community-wide and safety and all these things that are equitable across the mm-hmm. board. Like that racial hierarchy is like a clear thing that needs to be taken down and has suppressed folks. Because if you did take that socioeconomic one through five and you boiled out percentages, I mean, it's, you know, yeah, there are white people and white folks in number five, but it's not even close to like the percentage of what people of color are on that. And like, you know, the number ones are like almost all white men Mm -hmm. to create equity. That's like the number one thing that has to be done. And the white folks that are in those ones and twos Mm -hmm. just don't see it that way. Right. Because of that individualism and because of those expectations and all of those things that we've talked about. Yeah. And until we destroy the racial hierarchy, I love I love that. Just let's just blow it up. Yeah. You know, it's really upon us white men to to support any of these initiatives to uplift, to empower, to give resources back to people of color. Because first of all, we owe a massive debt, right, to people yeah. of color. Like before we even get to like let's create a equitable society you know access to all things we have a massive debt to repay right we can talk about reparations and i'm sure we'll talk about that in a later episode but mm-hmm. that's number one you know it's just to be like we 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 need to give back the resources and money that is owed to to people who deserve it mm-hmm. period you know and then moving on into how do we create access opportunities for people who've historically not had that, it's on us to support that and to vote for it and to be a part of creating policies and to leveraging our power to doing that. Because first of all, in a selfish way, it helps us. Like at the end of the day, it's really about when we all do better, when we all do better. And it starts to break down this this hierarchy, this this caste system, which is creating all of this uprising, chaos, unrest, lack of peace in, in our country. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I really believe in the saying, no justice, no peace. Yeah. You know, there will be no peace 
And, and that's, that's something that we can all get behind is just, is to live peacefully together. Right. We'll never, ever have that until there is justice. And I think people hear that and think of it as a threat. It's not a threat. It's being stated as right. like a fact. In no, in no society, if there is no justice, is there peace? You know, maybe we wrap this up with linking it back to the identity work that we do on this podcast that we think is so important. You know, work through these things, white people work through these things to understand our ecosystem, to understand these hierarchies, to understand what has been traditional masculinity that maybe leads to anger. To understand that's the way to break that stuff down internally as well. And for us white men, you know, I'm sure I could assume that everybody, the vast majority of people listening to this aren't like extraordinarily violent people. Right. Let's just make that assumption. But there's like angers that can flare up and there's way that we can react to things. And there's, you know, to start to talk about this stuff and recognize this stuff and recognize these hierarchies, we are able to check that within ourselves to be able to see that, notice it. And to see, like you said, what we can do kind of break that stuff down yeah. and bring it to our workplaces you know our future episode we're starting that conversation all right what can we do in the workplaces in our racial equity work and checking these types of emotions is good i think what would help it helps me as a mind chef to go from what a, what might we lose to what might we gain mm. and i know that sounds selfish on the surface but I think it's a critical mindset shift because when we're in this place of what will we lose, that leads us to fear, right? And fear leads to violence, leads to anger, leads to resentment, leads to protection. Yeah. It leads to selfishness, right? But if we shift to what, what will be gained, not only for ourselves personally, and we've talked about that, there is a lot to be gained when we talk about racial and gender equity but clearly what can be gained at a societal level. And that opens us up to being okay with loss yeah. a little bit, because we know that even though we might, sure we might be losing something objectively, we're gaining more. So it's it's moving away from the zero sum where like if someone else gains something, I lose something to actually this addition by subtraction. Is that the right word? But like by us losing something, we're actually adding more to our, our lives and also to our society in general. Yeah. All right. Until next time, let's keep learning, stay humble, and do the work. Thank you for listening to The Modern White Man. Please connect with us on our website, themodernwhiteman.com, where you can learn more about our work, read blog posts with topics revolving around the continuous work of being anti-racist and anti-sexist, and subscribe to our newsletter to stay in the loop with various relevant topics and future ways to get more involved. As always, if you are enjoying this podcast, please subscribe, rate, and share, both individually and on social media. That's how we get the most traction. After all, the more white men that have these conversations, the better.